Welcome to Follow the Money Ball, a podcast at the intersection of sports and business. Here's your host, David Sloan. I'm David Sloan, and I have opinions. I also have 44 years of experience as an agent for MLB players that back those opinions up. I'm talking with Jeff Baker. I think Jeff Baker could be described in many ways, but mostly as a writer currently with the Seattle, is it the Seattle Times? Yes, yes, it's still. Seattle Times, as well as the author of several books, uh, many of them hockey oriented, but we'll leave that uh, game to the side for the, for the moment. I'm not too well, I'm not well versed enough in hockey to interview anyone about it. Um, but uh, there are some certainly some things that I, I do want to discuss with you. However, before we get into that, Jeff, uh, I, I'd like to start off by starting off. Uh, how did you get into the sports writing business? Were you always a writer as a, as a kid? Did you always do well in, in English class, that sort of thing? I, I actually played football uh, when I was younger, and I ended up blowing out my knee. This is when I was about 17. Uh, well, actually, it was earlier than that, but it, I, I started writing for the local paper uh, covering the team that I was playing for. It was a city team. And um, and then even after I started playing again, I, I kept the writing going and ended up going to journalism school and then got into uh, news writing at first with the Montreal Gazette. Uh, that was my first serious daily newspaper job. Uh, did it for years, did some investigative reporting for them on the city side. Um, actually was a business reporter for, uh, for a time, but, um, they wanted me to get into, uh, sports writing a little bit. And so I did, and I found that I was writing more about the business issues of sports at times than I was, uh, you know, about the on-field stuff. And, and I was actually pretty good at it. And that ended up leading to a job covering baseball for the Toronto star for years. Uh, and, and that sort of that business angle continued for, for quite a bit writing about, uh, at the time, uh, you know, whether they should get a new uh, baseball stadium there, they had just opened up the, what was then known as the Sky Dome, and it became, uh, it be, it became um, the, the Rogers Center after Rogers Communications bought it. But, you know, it quickly became outdated, and there was a push to, you know, to see whether they could use public money to update that facility. And there, there was a lot of issues around that. So I, I got more into more comfortable writing about sports business issues at the time and, and, you know, the spending or lack of by the baseball team. And uh, that led to a job in Seattle with the Seattle times covering the Mariners. And then uh, I did that for seven more years. And then after that, they gave me a sports business column, made me a sports investigative reporter. And, and I did that for years um, in Seattle, most uh, much of the last 10 years, I would say, and got into writing about the arena issues. They were trying to get an arena, a new arena built here after they lost the supersonics to uh, Oklahoma city and so I covered that for years, and that led to the NHL franchise coming here. And, and since I grew up in Canada, uh, who else to write about an NHL team than me? And so I sort of shifted gears a little bit and have moved into writing about hockey the last two years. But but it's it's been a it's been a journey to say the least. Definitely. Were you from Montreal originally? Is that where you grew up? I did. I grew up there. Lived there for 29 years, and then uh, moved to Toronto in uh, the midst of the 1998 baseball season, which was very interesting at the time. A lot of stuff was happening around the team. No doubt. Well, that's where you and I first uh, encountered each other when I was representing Carlos Delgado. And um, interestingly enough, um, uh, we're, we're planning on moving. And if you see the uh, filing cabinet back there, um, I spent most of uh, the last few days uh, distilling that entire filing cabinet down into a stack of things about that big that I'm saving it from it. And uh, many of those having to do with that, with that time period. Um, what sticks out the most in your mind from that time period um, in, in terms of when you first started covering the Jays? Wow. Where to start? Well, Tim Johnson was the manager and uh, he, he was telling people about his Vietnam war exploits at the time. Unfortunately, he never fought in the Vietnam war. And uh, so I ended up writing, basically sort of breaking that story, I guess you could say. Uh, there was a lot of uh, turmoil going on between Johnson and his coaching staff because they kind of knew that he, he was telling lies about serving in the war. And, and he you know, it ended, up, ended up costing Johnson his, his career. He was done after one season of 88 wins, uh, which you don't see very often in the sports world. He's basically baseball unofficially for life. I, I don't know if that punishment fits the crime given – 
what we've seen over the last 25 years as far as what people can get away with in the sports world and, and get second and third and fourth chances. He never really got a second chance. I, I do feel somewhat badly about that. And, um, but that that's certainly one thing that sticks out. I believe you were once a sports agent for Shannon Stewart. Were, were you not? Or I was correct. I, I had several guys on the Jays. I had Shannon Stewart. I had Mike Timlin. Yeah. I had uh, a guy by the name of Anthony Ward. I had uh, a guy by the name of Charnal Adriana, Ricardo Jordan. Um, I'm trying to remember the other guy, Jesse Cross. You talk about somebody throwing their career away. Jesse Cross, I don't know if you ever followed him very much, but he was an undersized right-handed pitcher who uh, had success every step up the ladder. And he finally became a, a minor league free agent. And I got him a job with another team. I believe it was Baltimore. And this was, you know, Baltimore wasn't doing great, so they certainly could use the the pitching. And uh, one morning during spring training, I get a call from him. And this is like early in spring training, like maybe second day or something of spring training. And I get a call from, I can't remember who it was, but somebody in the Baltimore organization, where's your client? And I said, well, I'm assuming he's here for spring training. No, uh, we have no idea where he is. He's not in the team hotel, and we can't get a hold of him. To make a long story short, uh, Jesse grew up in a small town called Ringgold, Georgia, which is a town on the border of uh, Georgia and Tennessee. And um, literally, his wife wouldn't leave. She she didn't travel with him during any of the minor league seasons when he was playing. She stayed home, and here we he was with an opportunity to make a big league club, and she wouldn't come down for spring training, and she wasn't going to go to Baltimore if he made the team, and he just walked away. He went back to, to Georgia. Last I heard of him, he was an assistant coach for a high school team there who had a, um, a draft prospect, and I reached out to him because I still had his phone number, and um, that was it. That was all I ever heard of the guy. So, you know, some of those – some of those stories are kind of funny. The, the Johnson I know from guys who I represented on the team that year was not necessarily the most popular guy in that clubhouse in addition to his Vietnam stories. Um, I, I would tend to agree with you that the punishment, if he in, indeed is being punished for lying about his Vietnam experience, I would agree with you that the punishment doesn't fit the crime and that people in baseball who have committed significantly more serious offenses have been allowed back into the game. So that shouldn't be what's keeping him from the game, if indeed that is. But no one's asking, uh, no one with a team at any rate is asking my opinion. So you started in Montreal, you moved to Toronto. 1998 was your first year then. That was a eventful year. The Blue Jays had a decent team. Um, in addition to Carlos, they had Sean Green, who uh, Sean was having some really good years that year. Back then, they had Alex Gonzalez. Um, they had, you know, some decent up-and-coming young players. Yeah, they also had a pitcher named Roger Clemens. Uh, they had Jose Canseco that year. That's the other thing that sticks out in my mind from that year was uh, – was was getting to follow, you know, Jose Canseco and Roger Clemens up close. This is before all the, uh, before Canseco ended up writing his book about steroid use in baseball. And, and I remember the, um, the, the strength t- trainer on that, or the, the trainer on that team was uh, Brian McNamee, uh, who I got to, you know, sp- spend some time with uh, various, various times. Uh, he was, he was always a nice guy with me. But then, of mm-hmm. course, you know, it became headline news when him and, and Canseco, him and uh, Roger Clemens were were battling in the courts and, and on national television uh, every night a few years later. Uh, so, you know, when, it, when you look back on that period in the context of what's happened since, I mean, you know, it's hard not for that not to stand out that, yeah, I, I, I got to stick around in the whole epicenter of that. And the other thing that sticks out in my mind from that year was, was getting to see the, the debut of uh, Roy Holiday. I think uh, the first time I met Roy Holiday, he had just come up for the Hall of Fame game. They were playing the Hall of Fame game in Cooperstown, and they brought Holiday up from from AAA. and uh, And I went and talked to him a little bit as he was warming up and stretching in the uh, in the outfield. and And then he went on that year, and I think it was in his second major league start. He came within an out of throwing a, a no hitter, and then of course he had a whole long road after that. And I got to know Holiday, you know. Quite, you know, fairly well. Um, 
won't say I knew him intimately as a, as a close personal friend, but I, I, as a writer, I got to do some good stories with him. And, uh, you know, it's just seeing, seeing how, you know, his life ended and everything and what happened afterwards, it, it, you know, it obviously makes me very sad. Uh, I, I think the last time I spoke to him, he, he was in Toronto with the Phillies and was just about to be traded at the time. Actually, sorry, he was in Seattle with Toronto and, and was getting close to being traded to Philadelphia at the time. And, uh, right. It was right at the trade deadline. So I got to speak to him, uh, right before the game and, uh, never saw him again after that, but, uh, we, we were actually on the same Twitter for a while. And, uh, so those, those things really stand out as, as well as with your client, Carlos Delgado writing about his not standing for God bless America, which kind of followed him. And, and it's just interesting looking at modern times now, because back then, when I wrote about that, that was in 2004, his last season with the Jays. And, um, of course there was no Twitter back then. And so that whole controversy didn't really blow up into a controversy right away. I look now at Colin Kaepernick and, and what happened to his career and how quickly that became a national controversy. And, you know, whereas Carlos Delgado was taking a stand on behalf of the people of Vieques and, and, and opposing the war in Iraq and the use of uranium depleted, depleted shells, for test bombing in, in Vieques, Puerto Rico. And, and, you know, it took a few weeks for that to become a, a, a major thing where he was actually getting booed when he went to New York. And then of course, when he joined the Mets, he had to, um, you know, agree to end his silent protest. Um, but I look at the differences between the modern era now with Twitter. And, and I wonder sometimes how quickly that would have escalated had that been the case in 2004 uh, versus oh. Kaepernick today. Carlos also would have been able to get his story out a little better if Twitter existed, because my understanding in my discussions with him was that, yeah, he was kind of protesting in regard to the, the Vieques situation with the, and, and many of the people that listen to this may not, may not know what that was. There's a, a small Island off the coast of Puerto Rico called Vieques, and it has been used for years and years and years by, I believe the U S Navy as a target for bombing practice and um they've really done not they've done very little to help the people that actually live there it's not deserted and they've done next to nothing to clean up the the results of the bombing the the contamination of the soil etc 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 so his protest was yes somewhat about that but it was also when they started playing god bless america right after 9-11 he was okay with that but when it was here, you know, what, four years later, three, four years later, and they're still playing God Bless America, I believe his his protest, if you want to call it that, was just as much about that as it was about Vieques. It was like, enough is enough. And, you know, we, we, we've observed this. It's now, you know, time to turn the page and go on and, and stop holding up the game to, to play the song just for the sake of playing the song because you know we've been doing it for three years and now no one has the the nerve if you will to stand up and say okay we're done with that let's move on um carlos was uh, a, an interesting guy with the press uh, i'm sure you saw a different side of it than i did um he was very good with the press but um some of the things that he said to me about uh, this writer, that writer, the other writer. Um, he didn't appreciate, first of all, how difficult the job is, number one, because it's not an easy job. And I, I know a little bit about that because like yourself, I wrote for a newspaper when I was in high school. After my senior year, I had played football and I covered spring practice in football for the schools in my area. I went and covered their spring practices and uh or their spring practice games at the end of the spring practice and uh i liked it i enjoyed it they paid me a ridiculous amount of money for uh 1969 for uh somebody who at the time i hadn't even turned 17 yet um and uh i i particularly enjoyed the money what i didn't enjoy was the deadlines and i i you know it, it's one thing when you feel something and you're then able to sit down and write about it but when you're on a situation where, yeah, this is what you're feeling or observing, but you have to feel it and observe it and put it into a coherent form and, oh, by the way, have that done 
um, two hours after you see it and observe it and, and feel it, that's uh, not necessarily the easiest thing in the world to do, particularly when you're covering teams that maybe they're not in the pennant race or whatever the case may be, or some of the players are not the easiest people in the world to to talk to. Um, for example, two of my clients, uh, Carlos and Shannon Stewart. Shannon was not a talker. He, he didn't talk a whole lot to anybody. I can't imagine he had to be a, an easy interview as opposed to Carlos. Um, you know, despite the fact that he got favorable press, um, you know, Carlos was, uh, had to be a tough interview as well. Cause he's a very bright guy. And unlike a lot of players who will, uh, answer any question, I'm sure that there were times when he was asked questions and his response was, um, you know, kind of on the on the order of, are you serious? Or, you know, something perhaps a little bit more, uh, shall we say, harsh about that. And then you got people like Mike Timlin. I imagine, you know, Mike, another client of mine who was with the Blue Jays, had to be a fairly easy in- interview. Mike was always a very amiable sort and very nice guy, very nice guy. So, um, you know, it had to be uh, an interesting team to to work with back then. Um, what teams of the teams you've covered have been the most uh the teams that you've enjoyed the most covering and we can talk about hockey if we have to talk about hockey here no we don't have to although i, I gotta say the Kraken covering the seattle Kraken, uh we won't even get into the name uh but covering them last season was a lot of fun they went to the playoffs they they nearly made it to the uh the semifinals the conference finals they came within a win of doing that. It, it was it was a good little run. It was very exciting. It's been fun covering a, a new professional sport in, in a in an untested NHL market here. That that part's been a lot of fun. As far as baseball, I tell everybody my my 16 years covering baseball, I basically covered the same team whether it was in Toronto or in Seattle. I, I covered teams that very rarely made any noise at all when it mattered, like after the month of June. And, uh, and, and so a lot of it was finding human interest stories. A lot of it was finding things to keep people awake between the months of July and September. And a lot of times both teams would make sort of these pretend moves towards contention. Once they, we used to have an expression that we would say, oh, it's almost safe enough for the Blue Jays or it's almost safe enough for the Mariners to start winning again meaning they'll go on these big winning streaks when they're 25 games out of a playoff spot. But then when they get within 10 or so, all of a sudden they tense up and the losses started to pile up. That, that was for me. And I, I covered baseball from 1998 through uh, 2013. And so the Blue Jays I did from, from 98, I picked them up halfway through that season from 98. Uh, and I left with a month to go in the 06 season. And during that time, you know, I think 2003, the year Halliday won his uh, Cy Young Award, that was probably, you know, the most interesting team I covered. Uh, That was the second year of J.P. Ricciardi's uh, regime. And, uh, you know, they went on a big winning streak. Again, it's safe enough to start winning again. They went on a huge winning streak in August and ended up, you know, getting fairly close at the time in, in the wild card race. Um, so it was like a little pretend contention push, but they were beating up on, on the worst teams in baseball, including the Tigers, who were among the worst in baseball history that year. And, and, and then came 2004, and they fell flat on their face because they actually had to start from scratch, and they were expected to win. And so that, that was the story of my baseball career, both there and in Seattle. So, I mean, I'd say the 03 team following Holiday's uh, Cy Young quest uh, was pretty big. And I know Delgado um, – Delgado had a, a couple of monster years in uh, in 2000. Uh, I think he was an MVP candidate, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, second. 2003 as well. What's that? Finished second. Finished second. He he was he was the he finished first among the players that didn't do steroids. That's, that's the way I like to put it. Yeah, no, I mean I, I'm not going to name anybody, but I know exactly. Well, who. no, you don't have to because A Rod won that year. He did win that year. I I did not vote for A-Rod, by the way. I actually, and and this is in in writing, I actually actually said that that Delgado um, deserved to finish ahead of him. I'm pretty sure. You mentioned Halliday. You mentioned Halliday. I I had tried to recruit Roy back when he was in high school in Colorado, and it was really uh, uh, unusual. He was the first player uh, from Colorado in a long, long time to be considered – a top prospect for the draft. And um, I didn't get the shot then. And then I believe it was 
two years later, maybe three years at most, he was in, um, I believe, double A, pitching for uh, the Jays team. And they were coming to Orlando to um, play against the Twins franchise. And I was going to be there on some other business anyway. And I asked him, you know, could I get a meeting? I'd, I'd still like to represent you. And he couldn't have been nicer. He couldn't have been nicer. I mean, there, there are some players in that situation wouldn't even respond. There are some players that would um, make the appointment and not show up. There are some players that would, you know, say, oh, great, a nice lunch instead of the crappy lunch that I would get for my per diem as a double-A player. Um, Roy said, you know, I, I appreciate your interest in me. I respect what you're doing. Um, I don't want to waste your time. I, I think I'm, you know, already set with who I'm going to have represent me. I said, have you signed with him yet? He said, no, but I'm pretty well set and my family's pretty well set. And again, I, I really don't want to waste your time. And I said, thank you. And that was the way it, it ended. And that being said, it's all, it was always easy for me to, to root for him because of the fact that he, you know, handled things with class. You also mentioned JP Ricciardi. Um, not my favorite guy that I ever dealt with much. Uh, definitely not Carlos Delgado's favorite guy. And primarily that goes back to his last year with the Jays. Carlos had a no trade clause that I negotiated in his 2000 contract. And everybody knew he was probably not going to re-sign with Toronto because unlike what Paul Godfrey had said when Carlos signed that four-year contract, the Jays had not intended it, you know, seriously at, at most any point in those four years. And so he was going to leave as a free agent and JP wanted to get something for him in a trade and talked about it briefly with Carlos and Carlos talked to me about it. And I made arrangements to talk to JP. Well, before I could talk to JP, Carlos, after the all-star break flew, he had flown home to Puerto Rico for the all-star break because he didn't make the team that year. And the next game was in Texas. And Carlos gets off the plane, goes to the ballpark, and all the writers are there. Well, what about this trade? And Carlos says, what trade? Ricciardi had already, in effect, given a press conference saying that the Jays had tried to trade Carlos and that Carlos had turned down the trade. So wow. they completely hung him out to dry. And I mean, Carlos I had... That. Carlos had Carlos had done no such thing. He had never said, I will not accept a trade. It was pending that I would talk to JP and we would try and work something out that would potentially be mutually beneficial to both teams. And when when JP pulled that stuff, Carlos said to me, fuck him, fuck the Jays. Um, I'd rather not see them get anything in return for me. And that was it. The next the next you know, significant contact I had with anybody from the Jays was not JP. That was Paul Godfrey. And Paul was like a man being led to the electric chair um, in that conversation, you know, reluctantly saying, well, you know, we have the chance to sign Carlos now and we'd like to make this offer to him. Uh, but I think it's probably going to be less than you expect, which <laughs> how do you follow that? And, you know, he offered $6 million a year. Well, Carlos had been making 17 And, um, you know, Carlos had had some pretty decent years in that four-year period of time. And I was certain that uh, he would get at least $6 million and one. Um, so there was no point in, in talking about it anymore. Paul was a nice guy, but I guess his uh, path had been charted for him by the uh, brain trust including Mr. Ricciardi. Well, I mean, he charted his own path because they brought Ricciardi on in order to cut the team's payroll. And yeah. once they did that, I mean, Carlos Delgado became an albatross on that team, yeah. not of his own doing, just financially. He, Like you said, he signed for four years, $68 million. I think it was right after the 2000 season, right after his uh, – his, uh, he had a monster year that year. And, and so he signed that contract extension. And, and, and he then, also had the opportunity to – um, opt out of his contract. Right. And that's why they, they paid him, which was a, a you know, a pretty, it's a huge amount at the time. And oh, it was the biggest contract in baseball history on a right. four year basis. And, you know, albeit for four years, but those four years, they ended up firing Buck Martinez then midway through the 01 season. And they, uh, and that was, uh, Richardi's 
that that was Gord Ashes last year as uh, as general manager. Actually, no, it wasn't Buck Martinez. Um, Buck Martinez got hired that same offseason. Then he had his first year. Ash gets fired at, at the end of 01. They bring Richardi in in 02, and the payroll gets slashed. And I remember Dave Stewart was telling me, because Dave Stewart was also up for consideration as a general manager, and he was telling me they have to increase payroll. They can't compete with the Yankees and Red Sox running out the payroll that they were running out at the time. And instead, they bring in Richardi and his mandate is to slash that payroll. And, of course, that was the whole introduction of Moneyball and Michael Lewis. And so that became the, the fashionable thing for teams to do is to try to win, uh, you know, get bang for their buck and, and to do what the Oakland A's were doing and spend as right. little as possible and get as much out of it. And the right. Blue Jays took that The Blue Jays took that as gospel and, and built basically they had a $17 million player taking up like, a, what was it, 30% of the payroll all on his own at the time and, and trying to compete with the Red Sox and Yankees, which was a no-go in the same division. And uh, the one thing I do remember from that period is at the time, the team did not own its own ballpark. It didn't own right. the Rogers Center. And right. that was owned by a consortium. Uh, a couple of guys in Chicago, I think Pat Gillick was fronting it, uh, Harvey Walkham, and uh, I can't remember the other gentleman, but but Pat Gillick was fronting that consortium. And, and they were at loggerheads for years because – the consortium wasn't getting any of the 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 revenue from uh, the baseball franchise, and and so they didn't want to put any improvements into the stadium because you right. know they were basically trying to break even, and they weren't. They were losing money every year. They're hemorrhaging money. The baseball team wasn't getting any stadium revenues, and so they were spending as little as possible, and, and they were just waiting them out. And and it was basically yeah. a war of attrition. And it went on, as you know, for, uh, what was it, like four four more years, basically the yeah. rest of Borgato's tenure there. And then yep. by the time they were able to buy the, the, the ballpark, they ended up buying it for $25 million. I think it was a – I think the ballpark originally cost $300 million to build, and they ended up buying it for something like $25 million. And once the team got their ballpark, all of a sudden, payroll went up. All of a sudden, yeah. they started spending more on the team, and Carlos was already gone by that point. That was the worst of both worlds, and and – you know, having a, a player with a large salary like that, um, you you can look at it. Yes, it, it took up a big chunk of the payroll, but it also reduced a big chunk of the performance on the field. He was pretty much head and shoulders above every other player on that team. So it's not like he wasn't producing for that. And the whole money ball thing, I mean, yeah, it was a great concept. The problem is... You need to have Billy Bean, not JP Ricciardi. And that, uh, you, yeah, that that didn't help. I'll tell you what. I told you covering baseball for me for 16 years. I covered the same team. Same thing happened in in Seattle with Ichiro. They ended up signing Ichiro to a to a massive contract extension, uh, and then they started slashing payroll almost immediately afterwards. And it got to be the same situation where Ichiro on his own was taking up an inordinate yeah. chunk of the payroll, still producing Hall of Fame numbers. Uh, and, and, you know, he will get into the Hall of Fame, I believe, on the first ballot. It, it's uh, – he, he was doing it and surrounded by – they had the one good pitcher, Felix Hernandez, the Cy Young right. award pitcher, just like the Jays had Halliday. And, right. and covering him in 2010, Felix Hernandez wins the Cy Young. I think he won 10 games that year. But, I mean, he was heads and shoulders above anybody else, but his team yeah. was so awful, historically awful. And a big reason was they, they surrounded Ichiro with a bunch of, you know, bargain basement players. Uh, they, they had they had like a backup uh, infielder hitting cleanup for them at one point. And, and it's like uh, it, it, it was the same situation. And, and so that's a lot of things that sports fans don't see. They look at the the total payroll, but they don't see how it's, how it's proportioned in baseball. They look at – what teams are doing in the name of cost cutting, but they don't look at the other stuff going on behind the scenes. So in the case of Rogers, I, I think a lot of that had to do with, with waiting out the consortium so they could buy their own stadium before they poured any real money into the Blue Jays. And that was after Delgado left with the Mariners. They were waiting to buy their own uh, television network, uh, root sports Northwest. They ended up buying their own RSN, uh, which enabled them to print a lot more money than they, they had made before right. when they were right. doing a regular straight up deal. And, and that happened for them. I want to say uh, it, it was, it was a couple of years after each year left and, and miraculously, once they got their own TV network, the payroll on the team shot up. And so fans don't see this stuff. So if you're in the media, you, you have to, you have to be able to write some of this stuff and, and know what's going on. If you're going to write with, with context. 
And talking I'm, with Jeff Baker of the Seattle Times, and and yes, it's true what you're saying, Jeff. Fans see that one side of it. They also don't see where the money's coming from. They don't recognize, you know, the team's getting revenue from this and not from that. And and the the fatal flaw, if you will, of that initial uh, Rogers regime was not making a deal that included the stadium to begin with. And then uh, again, bringing in Richardi to take Gord Ashes. Gord Ash will never go down in baseball history as the greatest general manager on the face of the planet. But considering the the situation that he had to deal with, where initially there was less and less and less money every year, pretty much after those great World Series teams. And then, you know, when he actually got the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, he was under some real constraints in terms of the money that he had available to him. And then, um, you know, the first few years of of Rogers ownership, it, it seemed the team lacked direction. And then again, they bring in Richardi and, and to paraphrase uh, Lloyd Benson. Um, I knew Billy Bean. Uh, Billy Bean was a, a guy I did business with. J.P. Ricciardi is no Billy Bean. Um, Apologies to uh, Dan Quayle. Yes. And, not that he's, and JFK. Not that he's doing any. So one of the one of the things that I definitely want to get into you uh, with, Jeff, um, is your recent book in regard to the scam that is perpetrated on communities that are putting up money for these stadiums. You mentioned the upside down math in the, in the uh, Blue Jays stadium. And it, even if the math isn't completely upside down like that, it never works out. First of all, to be what the presentation is to the municipality, whatever the amount that they say the stadium's going to cost, it never costs that much. It always costs more. And then inevitably, it's the, the stadium becomes obsolete as soon as the very next bigger, better stadium comes along. Um, please, I, I don't want to step on the lead here, but you've done a book about it. Am, am I off base in in making those statements or, or am I in any way, shape, or form accurate? No, uh, not at all. You're, you're completely, you know what, an economist, sports economist, far more uh, well-versed in, in sports economics than me is a guy named Vic Mac- Matheson, Victor Matheson over at Holy Cross. And he once told me that there's not a single independent economist in the world, independent economist, that will tell you that these stadium deals work out in the public interest if there's public money involved. So, you know, all these promises of, you know, where, oh, it's going to regenerate the, the area right around the state. It's going to create all these kinds of jobs, bring in untold hundreds of millions of revenue a year to the city. None of that's true. And he once told me that's the only thing that economists can ever agree upon, 100%. Now, the ones that you see writing about all these benefits, and they'll always get an economist to, to do these studies that you mentioned, um, they're always paid. They are paid. Right by these special interests. And so of course they're gonna come up with conclusions that those special interests want. I mean, economists aren't necessarily the wealthiest people in the world, even though they write about money and how people should be spending it. And so, you know, you write a few checks to these guys, you'll, you'll get the conclusions that you want. And that's been my experience looking at, uh, not just listening to, to what Victor Matheson told me verbatim, but, you know, checking out some of the things that he saw. And, and, and he's right. I could not find a single independent economist that, that ever looked at one of these publicly, publicly financed stadium deals and said, hey, that, that's a great deal for the community. So here in Seattle, um, my book, Rising from the Deep, it, it talks about the, the Seattle Kraken coming here as the first NHL franchise in Seattle. But it's also primarily a book about how Seattle lost the Supersonics um, to NBA team to Oklahoma City, and, and it's basically their quest. They, they've had this quest going on for 15 years here to get an NBA franchise back, and one of the things they needed to do was get a new arena because Key Arena was the reason built for the 62 World's Fair, but that was the reason that the uh, Sonics left. Howard Schultz wound up selling the team to the Oklahoma City interest, and they moved it within a couple of years because they could not get public financing in order to upgrade the arena to the to the extent that they needed. They basically wanted a brand new arena, and Seattle had already, um, you know, had already blown its load of cash, public cash, building first Safeco Field for the Mariners, now T-Mobile Park, and then uh, Quest Field for the Seahawks, right next door, um, now known as uh, uh, Lumen Field. They built these two stadiums side by side. They used uh, three hundred million plus for the Mariners 
and I think it was close to 400 million for the Seahawks. And there was no appetite here to rebuild a sports arena for the basketball team. They came around looking for their little uh, uh, bite at the pizza slice, and and they said no. The city said no, so they left for Oklahoma City. So basically, you had a you had a deal here. Um, the, there were there were some groups that passed basically a civic bylaw saying you can't give any more public financing, any more public money to sports venues unless you can show that it's going to turn uh, at least break even or turn a modest profit. And, and so that was a big hangup for years and years. And then there was a proposal here to build a stadium right next to the Mariners facility, uh, build a new hockey arena, brand new, but they were going to require up to 250 million in public bond funding. And, and that's where I started getting involved. They said, Oh, it's going to be cost neutral. It's not. And I, and I said, no, there's no such thing. There's as no as such as thing. You're using the city's bonding capacity. It could be using that to build public parks or, or, you know, help, cool. help improve infrastructure. Uh, building a, a public uh, arena, building an arena that's going to take business from one end of the city and move it down to its end of the city, that's not helping the city. That's not the best use of the bonding capacity. And so long story short, um, council ended up, uh, it was a long contentious thing. The city council in a very controversial vote ended up shooting this project down. And then Tim Liwicki, uh, who runs the Oakview Group out in Los Angeles and has connections all over the sports world, uh, including his brother who had run the Seahawks, his brother Todd Liwicki had run the Seahawks for years. Uh, Tim Liwicki comes in with the Oakview Group with Irving Azoff, his his uh, business partner, who used to be longtime manager of the Eagles and a, a big music mogul. Uh, they come in and they basically say, we're going to take Key Arena, which was the dilapidated you know, arena still works, still was turning a modest profit here, but it needed hundreds of millions of renovations. The city knew that. And so they basically said, we'll, we'll redo the whole arena. And they did for $1.15 billion uh, of all private funding. They did that. They got a couple of tax breaks in there. Yes, nothing's ever free, but basically now you have a 1.15 billion all private facility. The city still technically owns it because nobody really wants to own the sports stadiums because they, they, they lose value over time. Um, but the city gets guaranteed uh, its revenue flow equal to what it was making before. And then there's a mechanism in there where they can make more and uh, you know, f- future owners can come in and divvy up the, the internal revenues, which is what matters most with the sports venue, all the revenues from parking, from concessions and all that stuff. And so it was a unique deal. It, it, I, I would say it's one of the most public friendly deals, if not the most public friendly deal in the history of American sports. Uh, but it took years. It took a lot of fighting, a lot of battles to get that done. And the book is primarily about that. Um, and, and, you know, the big the big takeaway from that now, too, is the only way the Oakview Group can ever make money on this facility is if the Kraken and the future NBA team that they get, that they're hoping to get here, um, stays put. If they leave after five, ten years, uh, you know, everything goes belly up because they're, they're spending – they're going to be spending a decade just, just – servicing the debt on this $1.15 billion arena. And it's all their money, you know, and they're in partnership with the city, but there's not much danger of them threatening to leave. Like you see with other sports teams doing, because they have skin in the game. They have bone in the game. They have everything in the game. So there's no, there's no reason for them to leave. So that's a plus for taxpayers. And, uh, and you know, that, that's, that's the main way that they, they make money is by staying here and making it profitable. And if they leave, they go belly up. Well, doesn't really cost the city a dime. So they can just bulldoze the state and make it into a parking lot. And that's that. That should serve as a model for, for any other city that, that says they need a stadium because look, there's plenty of places. Wrigley field's been there for a hundred years and yes, they upgraded it. Fenway park has been there for a hundred years. Yes, they upgraded it, but nonetheless, um, it wasn't the heist that many of these other cities have been blackmailed into participating in. Rob Manfred was in Kansas City recently saying, oh, they need more. They need a new city, a new stadium in this city. And, you know, you mentioned about how the, the propaganda says, oh, we'll develop this area around the stadium. Yeah, you'll develop it. To your benefit, not to the benefit of the municipality or the county, the taxpayers, to the benefit of the private people that own the team. It's it's another case of privatizing the profit and socializing the risk. And and that's just been the pattern in almost every stadium that that is built in the in the United States. 
I have a question, you know, from a provincial perspective. Has there ever been a worse scam perpetrated in regard to a stadium than the one that took place down here in Miami? Uh, has there been one? Well, probably not with all the investigations that, that have gone on. I mean, the, the one that they built in my hometown of Montreal was pretty bad. They built it at Olympic Stadium for the uh, Olympic Games in 76. Right. The cost overruns right. were astronomical. The crime and corruption and, and organized crime that was involved in that um, is, is legendary there. And it ended up, I think, in modern money, it would cost like $2 billion or $3 billion. And they ended up paying, paying it off with cigarette taxes for 30 years. Um, you know, so I grew up knowing what, what not to do, knowing how bad the Olympics could be for a city when it comes to cost overruns and, and hits on taxpayers. And so, but yeah, certainly Miami, uh, Miami definitely, uh, as far as a modern example goes that, that, uh, that, that tried that that's one for the record books right there. And, um, it, it's funny, the, uh, I, I haven't been following attendance down there, but I can't imagine it's it's uh, I, I can't imagine it's anything really uh, really special. It hasn't gone up by leaps and bounds, has it? I, I remember absolutely when absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely not. Maybe maybe the Montreal situation is where where Loria learned how to um, pull the scam that got pulled down here. You know, when I first started doing a, a podcast, I can't remember who it was, but. Someone asked me if I was going to talk to David Sampson because David Sampson does his own podcast. And I said, what am I going to, what am I going to interview him about, about how to blackmail people, how to deal money from the public? That's, that's the only notable thing David Sampson ever did. He certainly never did anything notable in regard to, to his tenure at the Marlins. And, and, you know, go ahead. No, it's funny. You mentioned all these shenanigans. I, I actually had a condo when I was covering baseball, I had a condo down in Glendale, Arizona, because it was close to where the Mariners had spring training. Right. And so my, my condo was literally across the street from the Westgate complex in Glendale, where the, uh, the, the Arizona coyotes played hockey for years at the uh, Gila river arena. Right. And it's a, it, it was a nice arena and everything. The problem is it was hemorrhaging money. And so, Back, part of this is in my book back in two. So I had a front row seat to all this because I was literally a, a 30 second walk from the front door to the arena. And it was a nice area and everything, nice area right around the arena. The rest of Glendale is like so far removed from the season ticket base. You need like a charter a bus to get to a game. The, the, the problem was um, the, the Gila River arena when it was built was losing money, like I said. And so in 2013, they wanted to extend the lease deal that the coyotes had at this arena and the city starts playing hardball with them. The mayor of the city was a pretty new mayor. It was very decisively anti, anti sports, basically fleecing his city. And, and so it became a contentious thing and they threatened to move the coyotes up to Seattle. Um, the, the NHL commissioner and, and there was a prospective owner that was going to buy the coyotes and move them at Ray Bartizak and move them up to Seattle. So I start getting involved, go down, start writing stories, from down there about all this. And, and it was very interesting. They ended up passing the lease deal under duress because they were threatening to leave. I think it was a five, four vote, very uh, controversial vote and we'll get into that another day, but they, they end up doing that. And then they're taking money that they don't have. They basically guaranteed this team a revenue stream. I can't remember some outrageous amount. They guaranteed them. They would get like 15 million a year to play in their own arena. I, I can't remember the exact amount off the top of my head. But they're basically paying the Coyotes to stay in the arena under the guise that, oh, they can't, the whole area will die. The whole Westgate area will die if, if the team leaves. And so they did that. They didn't have enough money to, to pay firefighters or police. They were running deficits, bankruptcies. They, there weren't enough people to go handle municipal services, but they were paying this team to stay there. Well, anyway, fast forward. And then last year, the city finally kicks the Coyotes out. So they're gone. They're out of the arena. And they start using the arena for other stuff. And, and lo and behold, they were actually making more money than when the coyotes were playing there. They started using the arena for, for trade shows, for concerts, primarily the whole area. And next thing they know, they, the Westgate area is booming because they didn't have to, the coyotes tying them down, tying up 41 nights a year of home games. So that laid waste to that whole theory, uh, which. Well, and you know what, what went on after that, right? The, the coyotes 
tried to get a, a scam perpetrated on the city of Tempe, where Arizona State University, my alma mater, is located. And oh. it, it, unfortunately for the Coyotes, it got put to a vote of the citizenry, and it was voted down by a large number because people just don't want to have to pay for billionaires to have a place for their toy. And that's that's what it boils down to. If you take these people that own these teams, generally they have a business that has provided them with the money to be able to afford buying the teams. If you take, for example, in Seattle, Paul Allen, okay, did the city build a factory for Microsoft? No. Did they did they provide them with a sales force? No. Did they provide them with people to work there? Absolutely not. But yet, because of the fact that he was part of the group that owned a sports team, oh yeah, we'll spend a hundred zillion times more to build a stadium than we would have to provide a factory for him. Yet, the factory would have provided good jobs that would have paid people above minimum wage, life-sustaining wages, whereas, uh, again, you know more about this than I do. Correct me if I'm wrong. Most of the jobs that these teams do come up with, peanut vendors, beer sellers, people that sell the the memorabilia at the ballpark, people that, that are involved in parking cars. There's a handful of jobs in the front office and the support staff for the front office. And you might even say the people in, in the case of baseball that work for the team at the minor league levels. Beyond that, the jobs that they provide are temporary jobs. They're only you know getting paid during the season. And in many cases, the beer vendors they don't get paid a tremendous amount of money. They're paid on the amount of beer they sell. Right. They're not, these aren't like what you would classify as white collar uh, executive jobs that they're creating. And, and yet they tout these jobs, uh, you know, in abstract, pretending that there's no difference between jobs barely paying minimum wage uh, versus, and, and as you mentioned, temporary with no benefits, no uh, medical benefits, no. Uh, health insurance. And, and so, yeah, and that yet they tout them in these studies. And this is where reality and, and fantasy uh, collide with each other because people are shocked afterwards when they look and they see what really happened. Um, they say, wait a minute, weren't those economic projections a lot higher? Yeah, they were, but they didn't tell you that the, uh, you, you have to read the fine print sometimes with, with some of these. It's funny, you mentioned uh, Tempe. I, I was down there at a Coyotes hockey game. They're playing right now temporarily in, in a in a college arena at the uh, at Arizona State University, right. and right. and so and I was sitting there watching an NHL game. Basically, fans walking right by, tapping me on the shoulder in in, in the makeshift press press box. Just going down and watch the players go into the locker room, and they have to walk from one building to another. And it's there. There's a little connector in between the two. Um, and, and a little barricades to keep the fans from from going at them. <laughs> it's it, it's yeah, it's kind of a messy setup for the Coyotes right now. It's funny, all the polling right before that vote that you mentioned showed that the Coyotes were actually going to prevail by, by a, you know, not a comfortable margin, but by a small margin. But, of course, that polling was commissioned by the uh, the owner of the team itself and by the Coyotes, not by uh, not by an independent third party or else the, the voting results might have uh, might have better reflected what the polling was showing. So, but it's not the first time we've seen polling uh, go astray in this country before a vote. Uh, again, talking with Jeff Baker, author and writer for the Seattle Times. Um, so, so Jeff, um, I don't want to just complain about an issue like this. I'd like to see if there's a solution that you can say, you know, instead of doing it this way, let's at least look into doing it this other way. And maybe, as I say, the the situation there with the Kraken could and should be the model. Is that what you could foresee? Or, or would you have, if you were king of the world, um, what solution would you come up with? Well, I, I think that anytime there's public money involved in the building of a, a sports venue, um, we should look more towards repurposing these venues than knocking them down and building something new. I mean, case in point, the, the ballpark down in Arlington, Texas, where they build it and then, you know, replacing a, an existing ballpark. And then 
fewer than what was it 17 18 years later they're building another ballpark in another part of town in atlanta same thing taking an existing stadium shutting it down building another one so if you've built venues with public money uh the last thing cities should be doing is is coughing kicking in more public money to build a facility somewhere else uh and and that was what the proposal was to do here in seattle when i mentioned bond funding they were going to use the city's bond capacity to build a brand new arena uh, south of downtown near the ballparks. In the meantime, Key Arena was a, an existing city facility. It was falling apart and badly, badly in need of repairs. But taxpayers had poured millions and millions of dollars into this thing, not only initially, but during a, a subsequent renovation. And so, you know, the solution was because they all knew if we build a new arena, we're going to have this dilapidated municipal facility sucking money out of the public coffers. We're going to be, you know, cutting off our, our, our right hand to help the left hand. And so, uh, this solution ended up being for them the best of both worlds because they got all private money kicked into propping up an existing facility and not only propping it up, making it a brand new, it's a brand new facility basically under the same roof. They held the roof up with popsicle sticks and built a brand new billion dollar arena beneath it. And, and for me, that, I, I'm not saying every city is going to do that, but I'm saying we should be looking less at always building something brand new and more at what can we do to um, better the facilities we've already used public money on. And I think the mistake that a lot of these these cities and municipalities make is they already have an existing facility. And rather than, you know, forcing teams to stay put and, and, and figure out a solution to their existing facility, like maybe reaching into their own pocket for a change, they, they allow this extortion game to go on and on. And and I, I get it in places like Arizona where one municipality in Glendale in this case is different from another municipality, uh, which they have, you know, in downtown Phoenix or wherever it may be. And, and they're often competing with each other. Same situation in Atlanta, same situation in Texas, different counties going at stuff. But I think the more these counties and the the more the citizenry wakes up and realizes like, hey, even if they're going to splash a brand new facility in our place, if we're putting public funds into it, we're going to be lucky to break even in the long run. And then 10 years down the road, they might do the same thing to us. So I think, you know, it's like anything else. It's it's buyer beware. I think I think the voters have a responsibility to educate themselves a little bit better on this. Rah, rah, boosterism and, and, and take a look at, at what's really going on, because uh, and, and, and hold their elected, hold their elected officials accountable. You mentioned Paul Allen here in Seattle. I, I have a chapter in my book about all that, about that vote that you're talking about. They, they, they basically gave him the public money to build, to help subsidize his, his stadium, even though he was a billionaire. Um, but that barely billionaire, one of the, one of the richest men in the world. It was, but that, that vote sneaked through by like a percentage point. It was barely, it was like a 50, 50 vote and they barely won that. The Mariners stadium was a completely different story. The Mariners got voted down when they let the citizenry vote on that. They initially voted it down. And what the politicians here did was an end run around that referendum result. And they basically went and got money from a different source uh, at, at, at a different government level. And they were able to circumvent the voters, uh, you know, tried and true decisions. And, and so I think, you know, voters have to start holding officials accountable for this kind of stuff or else, yeah, you know, it's, it's like, is it going to change overnight? No, but I think people can point to a situation like what happened here in Seattle. And that's one part of, you know, why I wrote the book. And, and they can look at a model for, yeah, you know what? Everything doesn't always have to be throw out and start anew. Sometimes you can recycle a little bit. And sometimes yeah. you can actually force these wealthy owners to use their own money. Well, you know? one way to change it right away would be to require that it is written in every deal that no amount, no amount, money from a city county or state will be put towards another facility until the first facility is paid off completely back to the city county or state that paid for it number one number two i'll put it in there that if the team leaves before that happens the team is on the hook to pay off the balance of what is owed to the city state or county Uh, i think that would certainly um cause some some teams to conduct themselves differently to say the least because if if they had to come out of their own pocket under those sort of circumstances i think that there would be a a much different situation and i agree with you 100 percent in terms of for lack of a better term recycling these other stadiums because if you can do it in a place like wrigley field 
that before it was the the field was before the team was sold I was in Wrigley Field back in God what was it 75 I went there to try and recruit Bill Madlock and he brought me into the locker room and it was a shit locker room. I couldn't believe it was a major league locker room. It was leaking all over the place. It was small. It stunk. But now, you know, players don't mind being there. Teams don't mind visiting there. And the fans certainly have a good experience. Same thing with Fenway. If it can be done there, why can't it be done in Kansas City? Why can't it be done in, in you name it, Minnesota, Florida, wherever the case may be? The, the answer to that question is because there's too much money to be stolen from the public. And, and it just keeps happening over and over and over again. And I agree with you 100% in terms of holding public officials accountable. Um, however, with that said, using the scam that was perpetrated down here on the city of Miami and Dade County. I don't think a single commissioner lost their job because of that. I think if they, if any of them were not reelected, it was more than likely because of the fact that they weren't radical enough in terms of their views regarding whether it's Cuba or whatever else, because that's a big thing down here. You have to be anti-Cuba, even if you're running for dog catcher. You have to hate Cuban dogs. So, um, you know, I don't think that the the scam that they allowed to be perpetrated on the people here caused any one of those guys to be, you know, voted out of office. Um, I, I hope it's a subject that you continue vigorously covering. Um, there's probably... Uh, fodder for another five or 10 books there for you. Uh, I, I think if you were to approach it from uh, the individual city county team perspective, uh, I mean, there's probably untold volumes of stuff that could be written about what happened down here or, you know, um, the new England uh, Patriots ballpark was another one that was supposedly done with a lot of shady shit. Um there, there, it's just, it's such, it's such a heinous thing. When you have people like Paul Allen, one of the richest men in the world, and he's being given money by people whose children are going to schools that are falling apart, who don't have a la- adequate police protection and fire department protection, who don't have adequate health care, and they're paying so Paul Allen can have a place for his team to play. It's a travesty. It's a travesty. And and personally, I, I thank you for covering it because um, there aren't many, there aren't enough writers, particularly writers of your caliber, Jeff, who are are covering that. So uh, again, sincere thanks from me, and and I'm sure from the people of Seattle as well because you've at least memorialized the fight that that they put up. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. I think the people here in Seattle are becoming a lot more, uh, a lot better versed in these uh, in these subjects, and they certainly had twenty five years of of practice at it now with with three different um, municipal venues in three different uh, sports. And I think uh, you know, I think their eyes have opened. Like I I said, there was no appetite here politically to give any money to the basketball team for its arena before, uh, before they ended up moving to Oklahoma city. And now, you know, the, the flip side of that is, yeah, they lost the basketball franchise, but yeah, you know, what do you really gain versus what do you really lose? I mean, there, we could go on and on for hours and yes. sometimes you do have to call their bluff. Sometimes you do have to call the bluff and sometimes you lose. Sometimes you don't have the winning hand in that bluff, but in the case of the arena now they, they've managed had they even kept the basketball team, had the basketball team stayed, they'd still have the same problem today that they had back then. There was no appetite for public funding. In this case, yeah, they've been without basketball here for 15 years. It, it stinks. And as somebody who grew up in Montreal, lost the baseball team, that stinks too. But, yeah, you know, you know now they've got a $1.15 billion stadium. The next time the NBA wants to expand, they'll, they'll be in a position to take on a team. And, you know, we'll see, we'll see if it ends up any better for them this time around. More, more importantly, and, and we'll end on this for now, Seattle still exists. The city didn't crumble. Businesses didn't leave there in droves because they didn't have the supersonic. Montreal still exists. The, the businesses did not desert Montreal because they lost the Expos. And that's the bottom line. You have to hold these people's feet to the fire and say, you want to move? Go right ahead. See if you can find a bigger sucker than you're trying to make us out. 
Jeff Baker, I appreciate you coming on today to follow the money ball. Um, I'd love to revisit this issue because there is so much here to chew on. And I hope that you will agree to come back sometime. Oh, anytime. It's been talking to you, David. It's been too long. And that's it for another edition of Follow the Money Ball with your host, David Sloan. To make a comment or a suggestion for a future guest, reach out to David at followthemoneyball.substack.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.